in the <clears throat> collective memory of a certain generation of Christians, my, myself included, in our collective memory, there exists this poem. And uh, if you're like me, for many of us, we, we, we've heard this poem or we've read this poem, but we, we don't know where we first read it or don't, we don't know where we saw it, uh, but we know it. Uh, for some of us, we, it was in a, uh, uh, in a beautiful frame in our grandmother's house. Uh, for others of us, it's on a bookmark. Maybe you have it literally right there with you. You have this poem. Others of you, <clears throat> you read this on a card that was given to you during a difficult time, a season of grief that you were going through. Um, <clears throat> the poem, if, uh, <clears throat> if you haven't guessed already, the poem I'm talking about is a poem called Footprints in the Sand. Do you know this one? Footprints in the Sand. For some people, this is a beloved poem. For other people, this is like the perfect example of evangelical kitsch and sentimentality. Uh, it's been derided and satirized on the one hand, and yet it's brought real comfort to many people on the other. If you've never heard this poem, Footprints in the Sand, or you've never read it, I could summarize it for you, but it's probably short enough I can just read it. Authorship has been debated. In fact, if you want to waste several hours, go online. There's like these think pieces and essays all about sort of the history of, of this poem and where it came about. But at any rate, it goes like this. One night I dreamed a dream as I was walking along the beach with my Lord across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. And for each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me, the other belonging to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back. I, I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at my lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This troubled me, so I asked the Lord, Lord, you said once I followed you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why in those times when I needed you the most, why then you would leave me. And he whispered, my precious child, I love you. I would never leave you. No, when you see only one set of footprints, that is when I carried you. Oh, so, you know, whatever your opinions of this of the literary quality of this poem, what I like about it is that it illustrates something we're going to see in Luke chapter 24 today. It perfectly illustrates this flip, this reversal. The author of the poem looks back and says, hey, why when I needed you most, the very thing I'm pointing to, I'm saying, see, there's only one set of footprints in the sand. So that proves that just when I need you most, you're nowhere to be found. And I have to walk through the darkest seasons of my life alone. And the whole thing gets flipped when, when revelation comes. She imagines the Lord, or he or she imagines the Lord saying, no, 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 that thing, you're that thing you're looking at to prove that I wasn't there is the very thing that proves I was there. I was carrying you. I love that. I love that in all literature and movies, maybe the same way. I love a surprise ending. Some people don't like surprises. I love it. I love not to figure out how the movie's going to end and a lot of skillful novelists and, and film and screenwriters, they can make somebody look good the whole movie, but in the end, they turn out to be evil and wicked. 
I like the ones where they look evil and wicked the whole movie, but in the end they turn out to be good. I'm looking at you, Severus Snape. But whatever, the very thing where, oh man, all this, all this bad stuff, and there's this reversal, there's this, there's this flip, and in the end the thing that, 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 that I'm looking at that proves one thing is the very evidence that proves the opposite. Why, what does this have to do with us? Luke 24, we've been looking uh, <clears throat> since Easter at the, these appearances of Jesus, and I want you to see wherever you are in your journey of faith, wherever you're interacting with this video, wherever you are, if you are not yet a believer, if you are a struggling believer, if you are a mature believer, wherever you are, this text has something to say to you. There is right now and there is coming a flip, a great reversal. Jesus talked about this all the time. The last shall be first. Those who love their life are the ones who lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake, the one who find it, so forth and so on. We're going to see this great flip. If you're a note taker, note takers rejoice. I'll give you three headings. We're going to spend the most time on the first one, but I'll give you three. The three headings, number one, the, the very things, we're going to see these two struggling disciples who experienced this flip, and three things. The very things you thought prove he was not God turn out to be the very things that prove he is. Got it? The very things you thought prove he's not God are the very things that prove he is. Number two, the very one you thought was your guest turns out to be your host. The one you thought was your guest turns out to be your host. And the very things you used to run from are the very things you now run toward. Got it? Let's jump right in and see how this unpacks. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. This is one of my favorite stories. I know I say that about a lot of stories, but this is my, my, my new favorite. It's, uh, it's got Jesus showing up, and it's, it's great. It's, it's even a little bit funny. It's a little bit humorous. 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, okay, what day is that? That very day, if you're in the context of Luke, that's Easter. Easter Sunday morning. That, we are still in the afternoon of that very first day. Resurrection Sunday morning. He was crucified on Good Friday, silent Saturday, and the disciples are scared in the upper room. Now we're on Easter Sunday morning. We're in the afternoon, and two of them, apparently this is like not one of the, 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 the 11 disciples that remained after Judas, but not one of those disciples, but someone who was in the larger company of the disciples of Jesus. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. We, I, I, I call them, you know, these two guys, but there's no indication that they're both one we get a name Cleopas so one was a man but the other could have been his wife it could have been a a, a woman it, whatever could have been two guys but they're they're walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem verse 14 and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened their mind is reeling things are spinning why what are all these things that are happened what, what what's what's on their mind we well, got to understand, they had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, like many, many Jews. Jerusalem would be packed during the festival of Passover, and every year it was the same story. Year after year, they gathered in Jerusalem, and year after year, there was always buzz about Messiah. Is this the year? Is this the year God's going to send Messiah? We're being oppressed by the Roman government. And before them it was somebody else. And before then it was somebody else. It was Babylonians and Assyrians and Egyptians. The names change, but the oppression remains the same. Oh, but Messiah is coming. Oh, when God sends his anointed, when God sends Messiah, what do you think? Is this the year? 
and they're studying the prophecies and they're looking out for who it could be. This goes on year after year. Every year at Passover in Jerusalem, no doubt there were little Messiah conferences that would pop up and they would say, well, is this the year? I don't know. Hey, I heard about this person. Maybe they're a Messiah. What, you know, what, but oh, but this year, this year was a year like no other. This year, they weren't just talking generically about, is there going to be a Messiah? This year, the city was electric with talk of Messiah, particularly with a name. The name was this fella, Jesus of Nazareth. And man, did he look like he fit the bill. Oh, they, there were stories about this Jesus of Nazareth, and you know how small towns are. You know, you know how, how rumor builds and builds. And, but then now they're in the big city, and now in this urban environment, everybody's talking about it. I heard he could feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and just two fish. I heard he could walk on water. I heard he could heal the sick. Somebody says, I heard somebody even died, and he raised them back from the dead. Now, if that's not a Messiah, I don't know what is, because if he can feed people, people make soldiers, and soldiers make armies, and armies kill Romans. And, 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 and he can raise the dead. We can walk across the water with Jesus's uh, army, oh man, he, he, he seems to check all the right boxes. Uh, the Messiah is supposed to come out of Bethlehem, check. The Messiah is supposed to be of the tribe of Judah, check. The Messiah is supposed to, uh, he's supposed to come somehow out of Egypt, I brought my son, okay, check. He, he's supposed to have all these signs and wonders, check, check, check. This is it, until what? Until that dreadful Good Friday. Everything they thought, he's the Messiah, but obviously, we were wrong. Why? Because he hung there and he bled and he died on a Roman cross. And Rome stamped out any talk about Messiah. And so the, these Cleopas and his buddy are walking back to Emmaus and they can't get their head around this. Why is this happening? How could this have happened? Hope is ended. For them, the Easter Sunday was not... Yay, he is risen. He's risen indeed. For them, it's, this is miserable. It is miserable indeed. <laughs> They're filled with heartbreak. Their hope has ended. Hope died. And, and it's not just, I mean, every year when, when Messiah doesn't show up, our hope kind of dies. But this is worse. Our expectations were so high. Look, if you drive out into the country with your kids in the minivan and you see an old burned-out barn, you say, oh, look, there's an old burned-out barn. That's sad. But if you drive out into the country and you tell them, kids, we're going to Disney World, and take them to the barn and go, oh, sorry, Disney World has burned down. <laughs> That's different and sadistic and horribly cruel. Don't do that. But my point is, is a difference in having some bad news and having your hopes so high only to be dashed. So while they were, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, you can't figure this out, and one's got one idea, Cleopas has the other, and I love this, Jesus himself drew near and went with him. Apparently Jesus has left Jerusalem too, and he kind of saddles up next to him. I love this, how great is this? Luke lets us do this thing where, where we get to see it's Jesus, but they didn't. Look at verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So we, the readers, get to see what they don't, that Jesus is right there. This is so great, verse 17. And so Jesus walks up and he starts eavesdropping, listens in, and he asks him. I mean, you guys are talking about all this Messiah talk. You're talking about what happened on Good Friday. You know, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And that brings them to a stop. They're walking, they literally, that, they are so shocked and sad by that that they stood still looking sad. They're sad 
Because when this stranger asked him, what are you talking about? It only sort of put, put salt in the wound because they had been talking about this Messiah. Surely Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, but obviously he's not. But more than that, they're shocked. Are, are, you, are you seriously asking right now? You, you, like, where have you been? Literally the whole city of Jerusalem has been talking about this Jesus of Nazareth and whether he's the Messiah and his crucifixion and all this stuff. Are you the this would be like someone coming up to you right now today saying, hey, hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah, what's up? Hey, uh, what's, going on around, uh, what's going on around town? I, I, like a lot of my favorite restaurants are closed, and I see these, <clears throat> I see these people. Some of them are wearing like face masks around. Like, uh, what's going on? You'd be like, bro, are, are you serious right now? Are you serious? Like you've never heard of coronavirus. You've never heard of COVID-19. Like this has literally been the headline for like months, have you been living under a rock? Are you serious right now? That's Cleopas's reaction. Like, what are you talking about? And so he, he asked him, verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you, and think about how hilarious this is because he said it to Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, bro, where have you been? Which is so funny because he's been death, burial, and resurrection. He's like the only visitor in Jerusalem who actually does know what's happened. Anyway, I, oh, I wish everyone were in the room so we could all laugh at this great moment together. But I would just laugh alone. Well, here's this redneck looking at Jesus going, well, what, you know, where have you been, buddy? And this Jesus plays right along. And he said, what things? As if he doesn't know. And they're, now they're looking at him like, are you serious? They said to him, and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, hello? Hey, hey, stranger, you've never heard of Jesus of Nazareth? You've never heard of Jesus of Nazareth? He was a feller about your height, <laughs> looked uncannily like you. I mean, didn't have all the scars and stuff, but he looked a lot like you. What do you mean you've never heard of Jesus of Nazareth? And there's Jesus. No, go on. Well, he was a man who was, I think he was about to say Messiah, but then he realized he was a man who was a prophet. I mean, he mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And here it is. I want you to see verse 21. Oh, but we, would, we had hoped he was so much more than a prophet. See, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, yeah, we had hoped he was Messiah. Why does Cleopas say that in verse 21? Why is Cleopas so certain that, well, he's not Messiah? Why? Jesus of Nazareth could not be Messiah, according to Cleopas and his buddy as they're walking back to, 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 to Emmaus. Why? Because obviously he can't be. Why? He was crucified. He was crucified. The crucifixion for Cleopas was the thing that proves he could not be Messiah. Why? Well, you got to look at it from Cleopas's point of view. They've been trained their whole life. We got to go back and unpack their understanding of Messiah. Now, I'll do this quickly, but don't lose track of where we are in the message. I'm trying to show you. Go back and read the Old Testament from Cleopas's interpretation. He goes back and he 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 he's been looking at Messiah, and his point is. If, if, if Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, if he died on a cross, well, that's it. He's not Messiah. Why? Because Messiah is supposed to be victorious. And, he, and Messiah is supposed to be a, a military 
warrior and a leader, and he's supposed to overthrow Rome. And here, look, we've got a mangled body on a cross. I mean, think about it. Start from the beginning. Imagine from Cleopas' perspective, will you? Messiah. Well, let's go all the way back to the garden. In Adam and Eve, right, they were kicked out of the garden. Oh, but one day there was a prophecy. There was a prophecy that one day the seed of the woman, and they're thinking Messiah, one day would, would crush that serpent's head, that old serpent. And, and they're thinking the serpent is Rome, and Messiah is going to crush the oppression of Rome. Well, it looks like the opposite happened. It looks like Rome crushed Jesus. So I guess that rules that out. And Noah was delivered by an ark, and, and Messiah is going to deliver us as the floodwaters of God's wrath destroys all of our enemies, we're going to be saved. Messiah will help. Messiah, like Moses, delivered the people from Egypt. Messiah, they think, will deliver us militarily from Rome, and, and he'll get us to properly observe the Passover ceremony again. He'll get everybody back on track with Passover and all the sacrificial rituals. They were looking at prophecies like Isaiah, second chapter, unto us a child is born, and unto us, uh, Isaiah, ninth chapter, second verse, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. You know this one, wonderful counselor, mighty God. What's the most important part? And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Messiah's kingdom is supposed to be an everlasting kingdom. Well, I'd say his kingdom came crashing to a halt on Good Friday. So there, Messiah's supposed to live to a ripe old age. Well, he's supposed to have a kingdom that never ends. Well, it ended. Messiah's supposed to be very active in the temple and reinstitute the sacrificial systems. Instead, the very chief priests and scribes, they put him on a Roman cross. Even, even something like Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant. Cleopas has been told his whole life that like a lamb was led to the slaughter and our, our transgressions were laid on him. Israel is the suffering servant. They've been told their whole life. But when Messiah comes, he's going to free them and deliver them from all that suffering. And so you see, for all those reasons, they're grieving for themselves. They're grieving for their nation they're grieving for what could have been. It was so close, but hope died on Good Friday. And now we don't know what to think. And so they tell Jesus it gets even crazier. As if all that's not bad enough, now there's confusion surrounding his death. And what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And they're looking at Jesus like, and you're not going to believe this? <laughs> Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. See, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, see, that, that to me, that is so great. They're looking at Jesus. They did not find his body, stranger. Can you believe that? Nowhere to be found, his body. Of course, they're looking at it. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You believe that? These women, I don't know, were they hallucinating? I don't know, but they, they even saw angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went back to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So I, I don't know. We've been talking about that. In fact, that's one of the things we were talking and discussing. I don't know. Jesus, I, or they don't know it's Jesus. I, I don't know, stranger. We've been talking about theories. Maybe the Romans stole the body, but why would the Romans steal the body? It makes no sense. The Romans would want to would want to show that there's a body. I, we don't know. May, we can't make heads or tails of this, <coughs> where, this where his body is. So we, we, Jesus of Nazareth couldn't have been the Messiah, but he was so close, and now on top of all that, we can't even grieve properly and have a decent funeral because they can't find his body. I don't know. What do you make of all this, stranger? 
Verse 25, I think Jesus, he can't hold it any longer. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What's Jesus saying? In other words, the very scriptures you've been pointing to that prove Jesus is not the Messiah, in fact, are the very scriptures that prove he is the Messiah. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's saying, look, the very scriptures that Cleopas and his friend thought proved Jesus is not the Messiah turns out to be the very scriptures that Jesus is saying these prove he is the Messiah. And verse 27 would have been, would this not have been the greatest Bible conference in the history of all time? Jesus, starting back in Genesis 1 and walking all the way through, gently teaching Cleopas and his friend. They know the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. But they're looking at them with totally different interpretations. In fact, it's just like someone today who's a, a, an Orthodox Jewish person who doesn't yet believe that Jesus is the Messiah and a Christian person. They can look at a passage in the Old Testament. They both read the exact same words. They just come up with radically different interpretations. And so Jesus walks them right back through. Cleopas, what were you saying about Adam and Eve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a prophecy that Messiah was going to crush the serpent's head. That's right, but that's not the whole prophecy, is it? No, I guess it's not. No, no, no. What's the whole prophecy say? It says that the serpent will also bruise that person's heel. In other words, there won't be victory without suffering, without pain. It was necessary the Messiah should suffer. And in this way, he'll bring around the victory. Cleopas going, oh, I never thought of that. Noah, Noah delivered the people. But your true enemy, Cleopas, Israel's true enemy was never a nation. Israel's true enemy was never the Moabites or the Philistines or the Amalekites. Israel's true enemy was never out there. And Noah got on the ark, and his family got on the ark, and the animals got on the ark, but something else got on the ark, didn't it, Cleopas? Something else got on the ark. Sin got on the ark. And Israel's true enemy was always sin. Israel's true enemy was always, who, what Messiah is going to deal with that? And God's true Messiah, like an ark, the floodwaters of wrath were going to rain down on him so that everyone who's in Messiah could be saved. And he's going to save, be saved through that Messiah's suffering. And, 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 and you said that Moses delivered and one day Messiah is going to restore the Passover ceremony. Don't you see? The Messiah was crucified on Passover to be, once for all, our full and final sacrifice. He's the Passover lamb who died not just as a symbol, but he was slain once for all. You're looking at Isaiah 9 that says his government will never end. There's coming a new heaven, new earth, and Messiah's government will never end. Messiah is supposed to be very active in the temple, and you think that that disproves... The true Messiah is going to be our temple. He fulfills and completes the sacrificial system. And the whole Old Testament sacrificial system points to Messiah. Even the, even the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Cleopas is saying, yeah, yeah, that never really made sense to me. I mean, if Israel is the suffering servant, it sounds like our transgressions were laid on the servant. The servant was innocent, but God punished this lamb led to, led to the slaughter. God punished him. Our transgressions were laid on him. He bore the iniquity of us all. But that never made sense to me. If that's Israel, Israel sinned. I mean, how could Israel bear the sins of another? They had their own sins to pay for. And Jesus, I imagine, saying, yeah, it never made sense to me either. Because Isaiah 53 is not about Israel. Isaiah 53 is pointing to the Messiah. He was the sinless one. And it pleased God to lay the iniquity of all of us on 
him. And in this way, the suffering servant can save through the cross. He talks about Adam and Eve. He talks about Genesis 22 when, when Abraham took Isaac up the mountain and a substitute ram died in the place, the only begotten son. He talks about the Levitical law. He talks about the sacrificial system. He shows them how the veil of the temple was ripped in two. He shows them the suffering servant. And eventually they get it. He shows them how every page of the Old Testament whispers his name. Notice, there's the, there's the two disciples, Cleopas and his buddy, and they're looking for proof. They're going, well, you know, I guess we'll never know who Jesus is. I want everyone to notice. When Jesus wanted to prove, when Jesus wanted to show what God was really about, all he had to do was show him his scars. All he had to do was say, ta-da, it's me. When, notice, when he wanted to prove himself, he didn't show them his physical hands. He showed them the Bible. He led them to their own scriptures. And so many people are there looking for proof, and they're looking for, and he wants to take you to the, the word. And when they get it, oh, when they get it, wait. There's, this is starting to dawn on them. Wow, a whole new category, a suffering Messiah. Look at verse 28. So they, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as, as if he were going further. No, no, I'm going to go on, right? And they're saying, no, 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 we're intrigued. No, no, no. It's sort of a, he acted like he was going further, sort of a divine head fake. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. In other words, it's much too dark. It's much too late. You're hungry. Come on, let's. So, they went in to st- so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, I want to close here, so I, I won't preach a whole sermon about this, but I do want to point out how tender and precious that verse is. They invited Jesus in as their guest. Then he flips it around and does something that no guest would do. Only the host can take the bread Say the traditional blessing, break it open, and pass it out. They invited Jesus in as a guest only to discover that, no, he's the host. Maybe that's an application. You think, I'm going to invite Jesus into my life as if I'm inviting him in as a guest. And when he gets in, I realize, no, all along, he's the host. It's he who owns me and he who paid for this meal. Notice he took that bread just like he took on human flesh and he blessed that bread just like he blessed his human body he showed us what a body could do surrender to God and he broke that bread just like his own body was broken open but he didn't just die as a martyr he gave the bread to feed the people just like his own body was broken open and given for us and our salvation the one that we thought was the guest turned out to be the host and finally their eyes were open verse 31 That's when their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And ironically, the minute they recognize him, he physically vanishes from their sight. Isn't that something? What what did it? Was it his, uh, was it, was it, when when he served communion, suddenly that's when it dawned on him? I mean, when did the light bulb go off? Was it, was it, was it as he, as he talked about the scriptures? Was it, was it maybe they saw his hands, uh, they saw the scars, they pieced it all together? Or was it just God's perfect timing? Yes. How are people converted today? How do people get saved? How do they come from darkness to light, from death to life? Yes. They come through Jesus. He's the only way to God the Father, but no two conversions are exactly alike. He, he works 
in so many wonderful ways. And here, they, for whatever reason, they get it. The, the flip is switched. The switch is flipped. The, I flipped the, they understand it. And verse 32, they said to each other, oh, come on. They say to each other, divine heartburn, bro. How did we miss this? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened us to the script, while he opened up to us the scriptures? Oh man, how did we miss it? The reason I love this verse, it is, it, it's the exact testimony of many adult converts. How have I missed this for so long? It's been right there in front of me and I missed it. I couldn't see it. And one last application. I know I've said finally three times now, but I mean it this time. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Why did they not, oh, why did they invite Jesus in? Why were they, they shutting it down for the night? Because it was too dark. You couldn't go anywhere. And here they go in the middle of the night, the last time you would ever want to set out on a journey with no public lighting, with no headlights, with no vehicles, with no cell phone flashlight, they take off in the dark running. And, and they're going because they've met the risen Savior and they're going to meet the other disciples who are gathered together. Now you tell me if there's not a greater picture of evangelism. Cleopas and his buddy in the middle of the night, in the dead of night, no telling what dangers, but the news is just too good to stay home. I've got to go share the good news. Every time I think about evangelism and missions, I think about two woke disciples in the dead of night running. And that's evangelism. Evangelism is not because you're so gifted at speaking. Evangelism is not because you're so good. Evangelism is because the news is so good. And even if you stumble and fumble in the dark of night, like these two disciples on their way back to Jerusalem, even if you stumble and fumble and share in the faith, the news is just so good. It's got to get out there. Well, they find the 11 and those gathered, and they say, the Lord is risen indeed. And this appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The very thing that they were running from. Get away from the disciples. Get away from Jerusalem. Call us ex-disciples and we'll just move on. Now, the very thing they were running from. They were running from God's people. They were running from the truth. They were running away from the danger in Jerusalem. Now, they're running toward it. Why? They've met the risen Lord. So for anyone here who's not yet a believer, I want to pray with you now. If anyone here is not yet a believer, I'm praying that revelation comes this morning. That your eyes are open for you before it's too late. For anyone who is struggling, oh, invite him in. He's, he's with you, invite him in. For anyone who feels that God is far away, let this message, let this be the moment you realize he's not far away. He's carrying you, to use the footprints in the sand analogy. Run toward him, not away from him. Let's pray together. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Allow the Lord to speak to your heart now. God, I pray first for anyone who's listening to this message and the very things that they've been using to disprove your existence or your care for them or maybe disprove the, that you are the Messiah, Jesus. I pray that, that there would be, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, there would be a, an awakening. And like these two disciples, eyes would be open all across wherever this video reaches. I pray eyes would be open. Lord, for anyone who's struggling, they're having doubts, I pray that this would put fresh faith by your Holy Spirit into them. For anyone who's, who's 
feeling like they need to invite you in. I pray today they would learn they're inviting you in as a guest, but it turns out you're the host. You own this whole deal. God, grant that. Grant that anyone who's running away from you would run towards you today. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Listen, if you uh, want to respond in prayer, if there's any need you have, call the church, 256-734-5632. We've got someone who, right now, ready to receive that call. Text somebody, reach out. If you're watching this on a social media platform, you can can, uh, uh, reach out and ask someone to, to reach out to you. Our benediction is Numbers chapter 6, and I look forward to the day when uh, we can stand together in the same room and do this. Until then, I ask you to stand wherever you are and receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And wherever you are, all God's people said, amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great week.